2: Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and we have to talk about the Employment Cost Index this morning. But first, we got to talk to Kathy Wood. Let's start with stocks which are lower today, especially big tech. But the S&P is on track for its worst month since the pandemic first hit. All of this amid another hot inflation reading, one watched very closely by the Fed. If you were hoping their hawkishness was peaking, well, maybe not. What's it all mean for markets now? We will discuss. And Kathy Wood joining us live. Her ARK Innovation Fund on pace for its worst month ever. Teladoc, one of her largest holdings, down 60% this year after that 40% plunge on earnings yesterday. And she just doubled down on it. We will ask her momentarily about that about Twitter, about Tesla, and more. And it's a special earnings hangover edition of Three Buys in a bale. Which stocks should you scoop up now and which should you ditch after this head-spinning results season? But first, let's get to Dom Chu
3: with the numbers. All right, so Kelly, you mentioned the worst month for the S&P going all the way back to the start of the pandemic. What if I was to tell you and the audience that the NASDAQ is on pace for its worst month since October of 2008 yes, we're going all the way back to the great financial crisis That's the pace that we're on for the Nasdaq overall. So as we take a look at the red market so far today, this is now tilting towards session lows, down roughly 339 points at the lows for the Nasdaq composite, down ten points at the high for that same index. So you can see 2.5% losses there, 12,551 the last trade there. And we are now kind of below where we were at some of those levels at the low over the last 52 weeks. The S&P 500 now below 4,200, down about 97 points, Two and quarter percent losses there, 1.5% declines, 550 points for the Dow Industrials overall. The rough month has certainly been in a few key sectors. It's tech, it's comm services, and it's consumer discretionary because it's the mega cap names that dominate those indices. If you take a look at Consumer Staples, the only S&P 500 sector as of right now that's positive on a month-to-date basis. Meanwhile, Consumer Discretionary and Communication Services, two of the worst performers. We'll throw tech in there as well, but you generally get the idea. It's the names like Apple and Amazon and Tesla and Microsoft and others that are really weighing on the markets overall. So watch that. And then the stock of the day has to be Amazon because it is an outsized component of both the S&P and the NASDAQ. If you take a look at the shares right now, down 13 percent, this is right about session lows. You got to go all the way back to June of 2020, just as we were coming out of the pandemic lows to get to where we were in terms of Amazon's valuation. And remember, Kelly, at the highs, Amazon was pushing a nearly one point nine trillion dollar market valuation. Today, it's below one point three trillion dollars. It's still a lot, but still That span, it's lost the equivalent of a meta-platform during that span from high to low. Keep that in mind. Kel, I'll send things back over to you.
2: NASDAQ's worst month since October 2008. That is quite the stat. Dom, thank you very, very much. And if there's a poster child for the pandemic stock boom and its recent demise, it is, of course, the ARK-K ETF, the ARK Innovation ETF. It peaked at over $150 a share last February. It has since plunged by 70%. The fund's marquee holdings include broken stocks, like Zoom, Roku, and UiPath, down 80% from their highs, and Teladoc, now down by a similar amount after collapsing more than 40% yesterday after poor guidance in its results. TDoc is the eighth largest holding in Wood's flagship ARK Innovation ETF, and every name in the top 10, with the exception of Tesla, is down more than 30% over the past year. Joining me now is Kathy Wood, the CEO and CIO of ArcK's owner, ARK Invest. Kathy, welcome. We all give you credit for coming on to talk about why in the world you bought 20 million dollars more of TDOC yesterday, right?
1: Sure, hi Kelly. Uh, and yes, I'm I, I'd much prefer to come out at this time than to uh come out and and be all over media when when things are sore when stocks are soaring, uh, because I think this is uh, our best value add, yes. Uh, Teladoc, a uh, very very tough quarter, uh, and that's. Uh, particularly for uh, investors who are quarter-to-quarter oriented. Uh, as you know, we have a five-year investment time horizon. Uh, but as fears about inflation and interest rates have moved up, time horizons in the market have shortened to basically a quarter. Uh, and so they the analysts picked apart the quarter and uh, zoomed in on the direct-to-consumer business, uh, which um, which did have a shortfall. There's more competition competition. competition in that space, uh, as VC, as Venture Capital, is financing some companies who are getting into niche areas. Uh, Now, uh, our point of view is that uh, that Teladoc is becoming the uh, healthcare information backbone of the United States. It serves uh, 16% of uh, of Americans are paid users. And whenever we look at S-curves, we are looking for that 15 to 20% range as as a trend moves into that market share that is the beginning of an s curve and the story is not direct to consumer for uh, for teladoc certainly that was a a big booster during covid the story here is much bigger it's business to business uh what was not mentioned uh and no questions about uh north uh well the 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 new york or tri-state area hospital system uh, that Teladoc uh, has won, uh, took it from another another entity. And uh, what was also not mentioned is Amazon's decision to partner with Teladoc as opposed to compete with it. Uh, The stock had been beaten up regularly over the last year as Amazon said, we're going national, we're going national. And instead, Amazon has capitulated. And at least is going to partner for uh, for some uh, healthcare services, uh, and uh, certainly through Alexa with Teladoc. Sure. So I, I think the story here is huge when you think about healthcare as 20% of uh, the U.S. economy, so a four trillion dollar ecosystem. The waste there is at least 400 billion. Sure. We would t- most of because this healthcare information system connecting patients, doctors, insurance companies, and hospitals has not been put in place. This is a winner-take-most market. And uh, and we we feel that, uh, yes, short-term, there was an earning shortfall. They had to cut estimates. Admit that. uh, We're looking five years out. We're looking at one of the biggest stories in healthcare, a category killer. Uh, during the next five to 10 years. What
2: do your analysts think Teladoc is worth per share? It is currently trading at 34, and I I ask in part because all of the factors you cite while compelling get to the heart of Arc's differentiation, which is your research process. Teladoc bought Livongo for $18.5 billion and just took a $6.5 billion goodwill write down. So why should we trust Teladoc's uh, business model and some of the choices that they've made? And what does ARKK think this stock intrinsic value is? Uh,
1: so Livongo was a very, we, we don't like growth by acquisition generally, but Livongo uh, was a very important piece of the puzzle uh, for Teladoc to acquire. Uh, it covers chronic uh, chronic illnesses. And uh, whereas teledoc was much more focused on acute illnesses, emergency room and so forth. Uh, so it needed that uh, recurring revenue base. Uh, and the other thing that uh, that Lavango Ligon- brought was a huge amount of data. This is a data story, as all artificial intelligence Winner-take-most opportunities are. Uh, And we have two data science organizations coming together, Teladoc and Livongo. They brought in Klaus Jensen from Memorial Sloan Kettering to run it. And very interestingly, they just hired uh, a a woman from AWS. She led life sciences at AWS. And AWS as the lion's share of uh, of life, of the life sciences market, she chose of all companies out there to join uh, to join Teladoc. She, her background is United Health, J and J, uh, and then AWS, uh, where she helped build out that life sciences business. Teladoc is thinking big. You ask us, uh, what is our price target out there? Well, as as Simon Barnett, uh, who is one of the most brilliant analysts uh, out there in this space, uh, was as he was looking at his model and and looking at how far ahead uh, they are on the enterprise side, far ahead relative to our expectations. And remember, enterprise B2B is where we think this is going to this story is going to fly. Um, he he was adjusting his model and he said, you know, I can't even throw out this number. Will haircut. It by fifty percent, uh, but he he sees uh, again preliminary estimates. Uh, 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 one day after this quarter, but again, we've got a long-term point of view, a tenfold increase. This is like Amazon. Remember, Amazon in the day, what, it, it IPO'd at 18 uh, in 1997, went to 118, and then in the crisis, uh, round trip back to 18. Mm-hmm. Today, it's at 2,500, even after it's dropped today. We see Teladoc uh, in the same uh, league as an Amazon. And, you know, we also have experience with controversy. Uh, Our first big source of controversy was Bitcoin in 2015 when it was $250 now it's almost $40,000 Tesla you know we were fighting that battle uh, for a very long time uh, and uh, it 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 went from $30 in in uh, 30 uh, on the split stock i get a bit mixed up yeah. uh, to where it is today $1,000 so these are big ideas i think we're one of the few organizations of financial organizations in the world focus solely on disruptive innovation. This is our bread and butter. And because most of our stocks are not in broad-based benchmarks, uh, most analysts don't feel the need to cover them uh, that closely. Sure. Uh, So we are doing something, we are fulfilling, we believe an unmet need helping uh, investors and advisors to diversify portfolios and incorporate disruptive innovation that is going to unearth the traditional world order is going to disrupt it. And uh, and so we're a good diversifier and a hedge against uh, the creative destruction uh, that disruptive innovation and is going t- to. To be clear, us.
2: you're saying that at $35 today, your analysts think Teladoc is worth $350 a share potentially. So when you say there's a five-year time horizon, those are the kinds of values um, that you're pitching to the investors who are kind of sticking around to still see this story out. Let me ask you mm-hmm. something. Have, have you ever thought that there was an investment, a holding that you overpaid for, uh, a, a mistake, a research mistake, perhaps, that, you know, was later borne out by an earnings power that didn't match up to expectations? Or has every single holding, in your opinion, been either a success or an unproven success where investors just have to wait a few more years to see better returns?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people understand when we when they hear us talk with such conviction uh, uh, about our stocks, and the conviction is born out of research. Um, they think uh, that that conviction translates into perhaps arrogance or hubris that we can never be wrong. That is not true. Uh, in fact, if we do, we we make mistakes all the time. If you don't take risk you're not going to be able to generate the returns. Uh, we have taken, it, since last February, uh, the number of stocks in our flagship portfolio, ARKK, uh, peaked at uh, 58 uh, and is now 35. So there are 23 names uh, that we took out of the portfolio saying, you know what, uh, we're not as confident in our assumptions or we don't like uh, this management uh, turnover, uh, management uh, changes. We watch like a hawk, and that's why I mentioned those on Teladoc. Mm-hmm. We're very impressed with the talent they're attracting. So no, we're we we're we, we are going to be wrong. Uh, we are. I'm sure we have mistakes in the portfolio now. Uh, and many people would say, well, look at the stock price. It's a uh, very uh, ARKK. It's been decimated. It's been decimated. Uh, and it's treating our 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 stocks and our portfolios as though it is 1999 when there were a lot of companies that were uh, uh, that were founded that that actually failed uh, that, that they were chasing a dream that is becoming a reality right now. And we are investing in that reality, even though many investors, unlike the late 90s, are running away from innovation, running into their benchmarks, and uh, and and selling our stocks. final question, you mentioned management. Uh, do you think Elon Musk is done selling
2: his uh, Tesla shares in order to fund the buyout of Twitter? You've been continually, obviously, bullish on Tesla. We're keeping it within that 10% holding range. Uh, more bearish on Twitter, as I understand it. So uh, can you just give us your updated thoughts on both stocks, especially in light of the selling pressure on Tesla that's resulted from this?
1: Uh, Yes. And and, uh, we we post our trades at the end of every day. And you'll see that uh, we have been selling down Tesla, but it's still our largest position, 9.5% in the portfolio. Uh, When we see uh, Tesla down you know, 20 percent from its high and we see our some of our other stocks down 60, 70 uh, uh, percent. Now there's more optimism with Tesla. It's in it. It's in the indexes now. So it gets more support. We're going to make that kind kind of trade. But our confidence in what kind of trades, you mean you're following you're selling out of it
2: because of the price action in some of the smaller, more beaten down stocks.
1: Yeah. So portfolio management means Uh, If a stock is, uh, especially over the past year and a half, Tesla. Uh, has been a moonshot mm-hmm. uh, and our confidence is very high, but it is, it is maintained uh, its valuation relative to some of the other names in which our confidence also have in, has increased. Uh, so Tesla, our, we have not lost any confidence in Tesla at all. And uh, understand that uh, Elon Musk is diversifying as he should. He has an incredible amount of his net worth in, in Tesla. And he, feels very strongly about Twitter so and we're very interested in what he's going to do with Twitter we had just had a brainstorm about it and uh, we think uh, we think he could do some magnificent uh, things with it uh, as a private company you know reorganizing the model in some way um, and opening up the algorithm so uh fascinated by that um, uh, so you know in terms of Twitter what's ironic here our greatest fear for our portfolio right now is that uh, our names will be uh, taken out. They'll be acquired. They are selling at bargain basement prices. If you give us a five-year investment time horizon, we will maintain that they are deep value names. So our fear is that they're going to be taken out. Uh, Now, uh, uh, Elon is taking out Twitter personally, which is even more interesting. We wouldn't have expected that. Uh, But, you know, Elon has done great things for the, uh, the transportation space, for space travel itself or the space interconnectivity. Yeah. And uh, we expect we would we would place a high degree of confidence that he'll do very well with Twitter.
2: We all have to go. But so to be clear, are you done selling your Tesla position at this point?
1: Well, I can never say never. You know, if Tesla went up 30 percent and and some of our other stocks went down 20 percent, that would be a natural trade for us to make. But it would still probably stay uh, as the largest name in the portfolio. Kathy Wood, thank
2: you for your time today. We appreciate it very, very much. Kathy Wood is the CEO and CIO of ARK Invest. Still head on the exchange. We'll talk about how many rate hikes are priced into the market and if the Fed would be any closer to a full point hike. Our next guest is calling for four half point hikes, and that was even before the hot inflation rate readings this week. We will dig into that. And as we head to break, here's a look at your markets just off session lows. The Dow down 528. The Nasdaq, again, the worst performer, down 2.4 percent on track for its worst month since October 2008. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We've had a slew of economic data this week, and arguably the most important number just landed this morning. So let's run through it real quick. We'll start with GDP, that first quarter read, which showed a surprisingly sour note, kicking things off with a contraction of 1.4%. And that was all because of inflation, the nominal growth, in other words, outpaced by that inflation read. The durable goods report was a little bit better. It did show orders holding up, which is especially important as we transition from more of a goods to a services-led economy. But the big miss in the Chicago PMI just this morning, that kind of took some of the spring out of the step there. Chicago PMI, six points below expectations. The only reason it's between the good and bad columns is it showed a little bit better on the inflation pressures. Anyway, before you think this can mean the Fed backs off, though... The inflation data this week, generally speaking, hot, hot, hot. Let's talk about the PCE, the Fed's preferred gauge. That showed a headline reading of 6.6% this morning. And the core reading, if you take out food and energy, was still 5.2%. And topping things off, the employment cost report. This is We're going to put it right up here. Bad, bad, bad to the bone. It's typically a second-tier data release, but a big attention-grabber this morning. It's going parabolic, to quote MKM's Michael Darda. It rose at a 5.5% annualized rate, a series high. And that's why my next guest thinks the Fed has to raise half a point at its next several meetings. We are now joined by Andrew Hollenhorst. He is the chief U.S. economist at City. Andrew, it's good to see you again. And what's your response to the latest inflation pressures?
6: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Kelly. I mean, that employment cost index, you really cannot overemphasize how important that data point is. What that is showing us is we really have a wage price spiral. These are wages that are rising consistently above 5% annualized. Um, Like you were saying, this is a rate of wage growth that really we haven't seen historically. And then you put that together with the price growth and you essentially have prices that are rising. You have workers that are asking for higher wages because prices are rising. And then you have firms that are raising prices because wages are rising. And that's exactly the difficult kind of spiraling dynamic in prices um, that the Fed now has to
7: address.
2: Is it possible it's just a one-off?
6: You know, I, I really don't think so. If, if you look at what's driving this, you look at the labor market, that is the fundamental imbalance in the U.S. economy between supply and demand. We have about two job openings for every unemployed individual right now. You just can't find those workers, and until that comes back into balance, you'll see wages that not only continue to run at these levels, they could even accelerate from here. So much less than being a one-off. This is actually something that can accelerate in the future and another reason why the Fed really is going to need to lean against this with tighter policy.
2: And what is your latest view on what we should expect for rate hikes and for the balance sheet, for the whole kind of tightening that we're about to enter that we've really just started embarking upon?
6: So It's all moving in one direction. And what we're hearing from Fed officials on policy rates is that they should expeditiously be moving to neutral. Now, there's some question about how fast is expeditiously? In our view, that's going to be 50 basis point rate hikes at each of the next four policy meetings, including the meeting next week. Um, And then where is neutral? Neutral in a 2% inflation world is 2, 2 2.5% nominal interest rates. Um, Well, those 450 basis point rate hikes are going to get you there. Um, But I think we do have to ask the question, is neutral higher now? If inflation is running higher, Every percentage point above the 2% target on inflation should be another one percentage point higher on the neutral nominal rate. So, you know, could the Fed actually end up going further? Could they think about 75 basis point rate hikes? Those are all possibilities, but we would view those as risk to our base case right now. Um, On the balance sheet, we should hear about that next week as well, uh, with Fed officials getting ready to announce the beginning of balance sheet reduction. This is just swinging so quickly. Not that long ago, just a few weeks ago, the Fed was still buying assets. Um, Now they're going to be moving in the opposite direction.
2: What if they don't tighten by as much as you're saying they basically need to or should do here?
6: So if you look at what markets are pricing, interest rate markets are pricing about 200 basis points of rate rises over the next four meetings, which is exactly what we're calling for. Um, Markets have really moved to kind of match our expectation over the last few weeks Uh, So what that means for the Fed is if the Fed does not deliver on those rate hikes that are already priced, they're essentially delivering a dovish surprise relative to expectations. So it's kind of a strange scenario where (laughs) even if you were to hike 25 basis points, that's actually less than what the market is expecting. And there's always two aspects to Fed policy. One aspect is what are you doing to the real economy? Are you slowing down the economy? Are you bringing inflationary pressure down? But the other aspect is, What are you signaling? What are you messaging? And I think that's at least equally important here and why Fed officials really need to deliver at least what's priced in because the message they want to be sending, and I think increasingly are sending, is this is a Fed that is concentrated on inflation and on breaking this spiral of wages and prices.
2: Very well laid out. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much. Andrew Hollandhorst at City. Coming up, the co-CEOs of Warby Parker. They'll join us next as part of the countdown to NBC's Inspiring America event next Saturday, honoring people who make an impact. We'll speak to these guys about that honor and these turbulent markets right after this quick break.
7: Hi, I'm Nick. I'm getting married today. I'm also a firefighter and first responder. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can make it to my ceremony to start the next chapter of my
8: life. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Hit session lows just about 20, 30 minutes ago, but we're off those levels now. The Dow down 475 versus an earlier drop of 600. Still Nasdaq in focus for the remainder of this month. Uh, what's that, just tomorrow? Uh, no. Would this be the last trading day of April? Then the, then this could be the worst month for the Nasdaq since October 2008. With that in mind, let's check the sectors where we're seeing technology and some of those exposed sectors under the most pressure yet again. Uh, if we take a quick look in tech today, Amazon in Alphabet and VeriSign are still among the worst performers. Now, one area that is rallying, believe it or not, are the Chinese internet names, Pinduoduo, JD.com, Baidu, Alibaba, all jumping in the range of five to in Pinduoduo's case, about 15%. Uh, The China Internet ETF, the K-Web, is having its best day since March 16th. Elsewhere, want to note that flooring maker Mohawk on pace for its best day in two years. This stock is up 9% after topping earnings and revenue estimates. And remember, it comes after Sherwin-Williams was a notable earnings standout earlier in the week. And keep an eye finally on shares of Robinhood, which has managed to turn higher after its sharp move lower on those results last night. It's only up half a percent right now but still it's back above 10 bucks a share. Now Warby Parker shares slightly higher right now on what's been a tough year but the eyewear retailer has made a big bet on shifting from online to brick and mortar. And while the stock struggling this company's CEOs are focused on doing good and that's why they're part of this year's NBC Inspiring America event. Joining me now are Dave Gilboa and Neil Blumenthal. They are the co-founders and CEOs of Warby Parker. Dave and Neil, welcome.
7: Thank you. Thanks for having us on.
2: Appreciate your time today, Neil. I'll start with you. And, you know, it's it's tough to talk about a stock versus doing good. You know, tell me how you would the vision at this point to kind of kind of have it all, so to speak.
0: Yeah. You know, we think it's a false choice between growth, profitability and, and doing good in the world. And we believe that we can do well and do good. And it helps us attract and retain the, the best talent. So we're able to provide right prescription glasses for ninety five dollars while providing a pair to someone in need. And we've now provided over 10 million pairs of glasses to people in need around the world.
2: Neil, let's talk about the retail footprint, because we're all digesting Amazon's earnings report last night, and the company is basically just saying that e-commerce has slowed. When I think about Warby Parker, you guys started e-commerce, we're very early to move into brick and mortar, continue doubling down in that direction. Is that right?
0: Yeah, you know, we want to be where our customers are, um, and we believe that customers want both the digital and the physical you know, experience. We now have over 170 stores across the U.S. and Canada, and we're just able to continue to deliver exceptional customer experiences with a net promoter score over 80, whether it's through our stores, through our website, through our two apps. Um, we've just been deadly focused on creating great customer experiences and delivering great value.
2: Dave, what would you add to that?
7: Yeah, we we couldn't be more excited about uh, the uh, potential for us to continue to scale our glasses business, both online and offline. And as we open stores across the country, it's also a great opportunity for us to put eye doctors into each of those stores. So by the end of this year, we'll have 200 stores across the U.S. and Canada. The majority of those uh, will have doctors. We also have a telemedicine app virtual vision tests that our customers can use to renew their prescriptions Um, and we now offer contacts as well. So um, really are just focused on making it as easy and convenient as possible for people uh, to take care of all their eye care needs with us, uh, whether that's online or offline.
2: I was going to ask about the contacts, Dave, as as a wearer myself, and they are very pricey. Should I be walking into Warby for my next pair or how does it work?
7: Uh, We think so. (laughs) Um, um, So uh, we offer our own uh, branded contact lens, Scout by Warby Parker, uh, that it's a a very high quality daily lens uh, for around 25 to 40% cheaper than comparable lenses. Uh, We also offer all um, third-party contact lenses as well, and and, uh, we make it as uh, easy and convenient as possible uh, for you to buy those online or uh, in any of our stores.
2: And Neil, as you highlighted some of the efforts you've made across the company, you know, you had early innovation, obviously, with donating uh, eyeglasses, but you're also focused on some efforts today. What is the next chapter of innovation for Warby Parker in terms of trying to do good for the community while creating better returns for shareholders?
0: Yeah, so we continue to expand our pupils project where we go into schools and provide eye exams and provide glasses. We're actually in 12 cities uh, across the U.S., including New York City, the largest uh, school system in the nation with over a million students. Um, And we find that when you provide children with a pair of glasses, um, it's one of the most effective educational interventions you can have. Uh, We worked with Johns Hopkins on a three year longitudinal study and found that a pair of glasses is the equivalent of two to four months of additional schools. There is not another intervention that has that sort of impact. Not extending the school day, not private tutoring, um, not even computers in, in classrooms. So we believe if we can provide glasses to kids across the country, we can unlock productivity.
2: All right. Well, we will leave. It made a big difference for me, 10th grade, when I finally realized I actually couldn't see the board that well. Um, I'd like to say that that was why I was having some performance issues. But anyway, it didn't hurt. Uh, guys, thank you so much for your time today. It's really great to have you and congrats again on the recognition.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much. Neil
2: Blumenthal and Dave Gilboa of Warby Parker. Our annual NBC event continues over the next week, concluding with the Inspiring America 2022 Inspiration List. We'll actually carry that on CNBC on Saturday, May 7th and across all of the NBC news networks. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC news update. Ty.
9: Kelly, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. Dr. Anthony Fauci says the U.S. is unlikely to reach herd immunity against covid he says the protection that comes after an infection does not last long. Fauci says current vaccines are good, but better forms of protection are needed. The FDA has set tentative meetings to review COVID vaccines for kids under the age of five. The three hearings are scheduled for June. About 18 million young children are still unable to get their shots because no vaccine has been approved for their age groups. The House panel investigating the January 6th insurrection has announced eight hearings in June. Some will be conducted in prime time. And in Kabul, an explosion tore through a mosque, killing at least 10 people, wounding another 20. This according to a Taliban spokesman. Hundreds of worshipers were gathered for prayers on the last Friday of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. On the news with Shep Smith tonight, how alleged kidnappers prepared before grabbing a three-month-old baby. Diapers, formula, and more. That's tonight at 7 with Shep. Back to you, Kelly. All
2: right, Tyler, thanks, and I will see you soon. Still ahead, strong demand, including strong business bookings, helping Wyndham Resorts to an earnings beat. The CEO joins us live with whether he sees those trends sticking and the impact of higher prices for gasoline, labor and for supply chain disruptions. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody, and look at shares of Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. They were at an all-time high yesterday, actually on the back of a strong earnings beat, down about 1% today. The company noting business travel is returning and higher gasoline prices aren't deterring guests. Yeah, you just expense it. Uh, let's bring in Jeff Bellotti, Wyndham Hotels and Resorts president and CEO. Jeff, uh, welcome. I'm kidding, of course, about expensing the gasoline, but it does feel like those are two very distinct segments of the population. The business traveler has entirely different sensitivities than the leisure traveler. What's your typical mix?
5: Well, great to see you, Kelly, again. And we're here in DC. I just want to get a plug in quickly for Wyndham's Women Own the Room program, where we're proud sponsors of She Has a Deal, where 22 women are pitching for equity to invest in development projects. And one thing we know that this industry needs are more women developers. And uh, we're really proud to be here. Your question on gasoline, uh, your question on uh, the business travel, actually, our business travel segments are, are, have never stopped traveling. I mean, we are much more boots and hard hats in, uh, in in our small business owners and our franchisees, owners, hotels. And of course, leisure travel is just off the charts right now. And, and
2: gasoline doesn't seem to be
5: impacting that in any way yet.
2: Wait, so you're telling me you're doing like a little shark tank back there? You play in the role of Kevin O'Leary?
5: Well, we've got some great judges. Unfortunately, I'm not one of them. We had one of our one of our team members, but uh, yeah, we are we, uh, we're doing it. Shark Shark Tank is a is a very good analogy of what's going on right now. There, this this industry is is so desperately in need of uh, of more female developers, more women developers, and and we have a program women on the way where we want to use our balance sheet, we want to use our resources to see more of them come in. Unfortunately, only one out of every ten developers today are women, uh, but we think we could boost that up, and that's what's going on behind me.
2: Understood. Let me pick up on something you just said. I actually have a chart here that backs it up, but it's pretty, I don't want to say it's hard to believe, but it's kind of hard to believe that you're seeing no impact from the gasoline price surge. Why do you think that is? Uh,
5: There is such, as all of your guests all week long, Kelly, have been talking about, just such unconstrained demand. Try to find some place to vacation this weekend. And no matter what survey is out there, AAA talking about the return of the Great American Road Trip and how this summer will be a record drive to. U.S. Travel Association here in D.C. is reporting that at no time during the pandemic has there been more desire for Americans to travel. Nine out of every 10 Americans are saying they are trying to plan a vacation this summer. And there's there's just record occupancies. are. Economy occupancy is up double digit, not not to last year, but to 2019, yeah. which was the best cycle that this industry's ever seen.
2: And finally, and I mentioned shares at an all time higher, You know, when Apple gave its earnings this week, they talked about how they sales could be eight billion dollars higher if not for supply chain constraints. Are you in a similar position when we talk about you know the opportunities for expansion or the constraints on it?
5: Well, you know, our small business owners, we're the world's uh, largest hotel franchising company, are certainly seeing pressure. But that, that's our job, is what can we do to help bringing down those costs, to find alternate uh, sources of, of, of sourcing, to look internally here in the United States or yeah. in South America, where, where, where you're removing that friction uh, and, and trying to minimize that delay. But uh, development right now, we just hit a record pipeline. Our pipeline grew 9 percent uh, over a year. We've never had a, a stronger development pipeline, and I think the—the—the—the the, um, Attitude of our small business owners is now is a great time, if they can find a piece of land, right. uh, as these women developers are behind me trying to do, to uh, to develop a hotel because we believe that we're be we're really at the beginning of what we think could be another uh, multi-year um, cycle ahead of us.
2: I, I feel I feel better already uh, with breathless excitement. Jeff, thanks so much for your time today, especially on such a big day for you guys. Thanks, Kelly. Jeff Bellotti of Wyndham. Up next, oil and gas stocks have been surging this year on those high gasoline prices. Halliburton, Marathon, APA up more than 50 percent. And there are three things these three companies are doing that investors are rewarding. We'll reveal that next. Welcome back. Ac- uh, Exxon, I should say, actually missed on earnings and revenue this morning. But the company announced it's increasing its buyback program to $30 billion from $10 billion to the end of next year, shares down about one and a quarter percent. Energy companies overall are spending once again as oil and gas prices soar, but they're still well below pre-pandemic levels. Pippa Stevens has more for us. Pippa.
10: Hey, Kelly. Well, Exxon's buyback boost really speaks to this new age of energy company which is all about capital discipline, dividends, and buybacks. Now, upstream spending on exploration and production is growing again as oil and gas prices surge and demand for commodities jumps. But it's still far below pre-pandemic levels. Raymond James expects global spending to jump 23% this year to $326 billion. That's an increase from the last two years of a pandemic slowdown, but below the peak around $600 billion in 2013. In the U.S., spending is on track to rise for the first time since 2018. But that money won't go as far because costs for everything from sand to drill pipes to labor is rising. And Raymond James says the companies will remain disciplined, preserving their dividends and buybacks regardless of how high oil and gas prices may get. That's because that's what investors want from these companies, payouts and more predictability, especially when oil prices have been all over the map over the past few years. And energy stocks are the top performing group by far, year to date and over the last year. And some of 2022's top performers, Kelly, Occidental, Halliburton, Marathon and APA.
2: With those huge gains we have been talking about and the prospects of more, Pippa, thank you, Pippa Stevens. Still ahead, if it's Friday, it's three buys and a bail. We're looking at some of this week's big earnings movers, including this name down 13%, and our trader says there's more pain to come. And the Milken Conference kicks off next week. We'll have coverage right here on CNBC, and catch web extras on your second sc- screen, including Brian Sullivan's market panel on Monday. You can stream tons of content. Register for the event at cnbc.com pro slash talks. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. The S&P is capping off its worst month since the pandemic hit in March 2020. And it's been the busiest week of earnings and kind of closing out with a whimper here of the companies that reported who are the buys now and where are the bails. Joining us, the CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez. She is chief market strategist at Lido Advisors. Gina, what a week. We all like our heads are spinning. Uh, Your first buy here is Apple. Tell me about it. So you know,
8: Apple is a tech company that has a whiff of value, and our signals are telling us that value back on the table. Um, and quite frankly, Apple had a great quarter and even though they they um you know, didn't do as well as as were expected. You know, the company and they had some warnings. They had some some real warnings about supply ca- supply constraints, uh, supply chain constraints. We still think that that's that they are still a really strong company going forward. Um, and you know, we like we continue to like Apple in our portfolio.
2: And my guess is lots of people feel that way. Like there, that's a high class problem to have. Amazon, a little different story. That's your next buy here. This one hasn't really gone anywhere for the past couple of years now. Why do do you think it's a buy here? So, you know,
8: Amazon is having a a really tough quarter because they just they put a lot of money uh, into investing into their infrastructure, investing into inventory management um, right at a time when costs were soaring and you got what was inevitable, which was the slowdown after the pandemic as the economy reopened. uh, Amazon lost some of that uh, e-commerce market share uh, to the real economy. And that was expected. Um, But AWS is still core to what we believe is an important value prop for Amazon on. And going forward, we think the investment that they've made into logistics, they're going to they're going to extract value from that going forward. So we think it's still a stronghold.
2: Right. A stronghold strong or a stronghold? <laughs> Both, maybe. <laughs> Both. Yeah. All right. Your final buy is Visa. And that had a great week this week, actually soothed a lot of nerves about the consumer. But you still think it's a buy even after that rally?
8: You know, we do, actually. Visa's a hole that we've had for a while. Um, and and one of the things is that we're not seeing a slowdown in global payments, despite all of these concerns around inflation and around the impacts of energy prices to consumers. Consumers are still spending. And in fact, because travel is reopening, um, Visa is also seeing that really high margin cross-border spending going up. And so they're just raking
2: it in on all sides. All righty. Those are your three buys. Apple, Amazon, and Visa for the portfolio. There's One, though, that you are ditching here, and it is Boeing after that (laughs) earnings report that has people just deeply concerned, really, about what's going on with the company. Uh, Even those we spoke with, uh, like Chris Crisanti this week, who are fans, said, look, you know, they're being constrained by the government as to what they can do here. However you look at this, you're not sticking around, are you?
8: No. You know, I think Boeing is having a really tough time. So it started with the 787 MAX um, being put on hold, and we still haven't heard anything about that. Now they've announced a pause for the 777X. And so all of these, sort of one after another, basically speaks to the idea that Boeing got pretty lax with their safety standards. And they had an enormous backlash after um, after the, the 787 MAX uh, airline crashes. And so, you know, this isn't the sort of industry where you can just fix it on the floor. Lie. This These are lies at stake. And it is going to k- take the company a, a real sort of navel-gazing exercise to figure out yeah. what they're going to do. And it's going to be an expensive proposition, and they're in debt. And so, you know, they're, they're teetering right mm. now.
2: Well, that's kind. Uh, Boeing at $150, a share down 41% just this year. Gina, thank you. Have a great weekend. Gina Sanchez with three buys and a bail. Coming up, Tesla higher today, down 11% this week after Musk sold about $4 billion worth of shares to help fund his Twitter takeover. But still, where's the rest of that cash coming from? We have details next. Welcome back. Shares of Tesla rebounding almost 2% today as Elon Musk says he's done selling to raise cash to buy Twitter. But if he's done, where else can he turn for the remaining funds he still needs? Robert Frank joins us with a look. Robert?
4: Well, Kelly, he sold about $8.4 billion in stock this week. He's going to pay about $2 billion in taxes on that sale. So it leaves him with about $6.5 billion to put toward the purchase of Twitter. Musk tweeting out last night, No further Tesla sales planned after today. Unclear for how long, however. And of course, there is the big question of where is he going to get the rest of the $21 billion in cash that he needs for this deal. That cash is in addition to the $12.5 billion he's got for interest loans or margin loans against those Tesla shares, and then $13 billion he's going to get from the banks. He does have about $3 billion left from last year's share sales. He still has, bottom line here, about $10 billion in cash he's still got to raise. He's got to get that from an equity partner or maybe selling off part of SpaceX. Who knows where that money's going to come from? The uncertainty here may be one reason Twitter share is still trading well below that $50 share purchase price. Tesla stock, meanwhile, down 19% since the day that Musk went public with that stake in Twitter, his Tesla wealth. Down $35 billion since that time. So, this is getting very expensive, not just on the Twitter purchase side, but also on his Tesla wealth.
2: Absolutely. Until we can answer the full question where is he going to get the money from? Robert, thanks very much. That's it for the exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.
4: Hey, I'm Ruben. My band and I have a new song. I'm also a tow truck driver. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I get to go home at the end of the day and see my bandmates.
8: When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down.